0: This is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students here with me today, and we're ready to tackle social media. How about if we do some introductions to start? Romina, would you like to start?
1: Yeah, my name is Romina. I'm a third year medical student at RVU, and I've been doing a month of psych rotations here at the state hospital.
0: And uh, Romina, usually I expect a little bit more of an introduction from the stars of the show. You two are co-starring today. Tell me what you're thinking about going into.
1: Um, I'm thinking about going into hospital medicine.
0: And how does this rotation prepare you for that?
1: Oh, it helps a lot. You see a lot of different things come in and out of the hospital. So I think it would be helpful to know where to direct people if they came in with more serious issues that may or may not be psychological, psychologically related. And I think also um, being able to create a differential that um, includes some um Different psychological or mental illnesses um, is a key part of all medicine.
0: So as a psychiatrist, I'm going to say psychiatric illness. Psychiatric
1: illness,
0: yeah. And uh, good to have you here. Hopefully you enjoyed your month and enjoyed working with the patients. It seemed like uh, the two of you spent a lot of time um, over the month, increasingly so building relationships with the patients to understand the mental health concerns that they're faced with. Jenny? Jenny?
2: I'm Jenny, I'm also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University Um, and I've been here for a month with Romina and we've really enjoyed getting to know the patients and their stories and hearing them chat with us and just building that trust with them so that they open up to us even more.
0: Has that allowed you to learn more about their mental health? Yes. That was a terrible motivational interviewing question, wasn't it? <laughs> what I think I should have said is something along the lines of how did that affect the interactions you have with the patients?
2: I don't know how to answer that.
0: I wish I could see that smile behind your face because you got a pretty good smile going on there, I think. <laughs> Jenny, what are you going into?
2: Um, I am a little undecided, but at the moment I am considering... Peds are family medicine, and my last rotation actually was family medicine, and on that rotation I saw a lot of patients coming in for mental health concerns and other treatments, so I think psych is very relevant to that field.
0: You guys uh, presented me with a topic that I tried to run away from. (laughs) (laughs) I tried really hard to run away from, right? Yes. And I, th- I think the issue was, for me, um, I, I think the question that you guys brought up was, or, or the podcast you wanted to develop was something along the lines of, we wanna talk about the mental health effects of social media. And I said, uh, you gotta find good data. And usually that scares students away, but you guys pursued this anyway. Okay, you're nodding yes, in case people can't see that on the podcast. <laughs> Tell me how you came to the decision to have a podcast about social media and the effect on mental health.
2: Well, obviously we grew up in the age of social media, and it's a big part of our lives, and you, more and more you hear about how social media is affecting mental health, and you hear about depression and bullying and cyberbullying in particular. Um, And we just felt like this was a topic that we could talk a lot about.
0: (laughs) All right. So uh, just out of curiosity, as you did uh, a dive into the research, were your beliefs and thoughts validated or did you change your thoughts about how social media may affect mental health?
1: I don't think I changed my thoughts. I think it's still a complex issue that needs a lot more research which is kind of what I had figured to begin with I was curious to see which way the data was leaning and I think we have a good idea of at least what kind of um, theories um, are going to be more pertinent in this type of research so I don't know if I would say it necessarily changed I would say it was somewhat disappointing to see that more research hasn't been done yet and maybe Um, the methods that they were using, I feel like weren't as effective. So maybe expanding um, how they researched this topic would be really helpful. And I'm sure we'll see more of that in years to come. Yeah, it seems like every article,
2: the conclusion was the results are inconclusive. It's you know, it could be bad, it could be good, and there's good and bad to it, which is actually the title of one of the articles.
0: So, so I would say that I thought there was a preponderance of evidence of what we read that well-researched studies showed that uh, social media probably doesn't affect the mental health of people. I thought that was probably the overwhelming kind of approach. but just just to kind of talk about why I was running away from this topic, I remember as a child when TVs were no longer black and white and becoming color. Uh, everybody talked about the amount of time that children spend in front of TVs, right? And it was the end of the world, the apocalypse was coming uh, because children were watching TVs. And I think, Probably the same discussion was held when books became available to kids, but I'm not <laughs> sure, right? So, so I think every generation or every couple of generations goes through this. There's a change in the way that we interact with the environment around us and, and whether that's good or bad is this huge discussion. Now, I, I think I walked away from this with some differences as well, whereas in the past I thought this was more hysteria I think there are some things that we came across that are worth talking about. And so uh, to get the discussion started, I think the there, there was an article back in, I, I maybe it was the American Association of Pediatrics put out a position paper that looks like it was poorly thought out, right? And the, the data was, put together poorly, and it probably was, uh, what was it called, Facebook depression. Mm-hmm. And, and it looks like that's not well respected at this time, that, that uh, report. Um, and so, even though we didn't see anything that said social media causes depression, we would like to add some high yield portion to this discussion. So let's go ahead and start off with the diagnosis of depression. Uh, which of you prepared that? I did all right so what's the mnemonic you guys like to use
2: the mnemonic that we use is sigi caps and in order to diagnose someone with major depressive disorder they have to have five or more out of the nine symptoms of sigi caps s being sleep disturbances i being interest in particular lack of interest in previous um activities and things like that were the medical term is anhedonia i believe um g is guilt e is energy uh usually low energy
0: pretty much always low yeah. yeah it's not really one of those things that goes up
2: okay c is uh concentration i for i always forget what a is agitation appetite oh appetite okay um where am I? P? P is psychomotor slowing, and S is suicide.
0: And there's one other criteria that's not identified in this, I think.
2: Um, depressed mood.
0: Depressed mood. It, absolutely. So nine criteria, and how many need to be present?
2: At least five.
0: And for how long?
2: For two weeks.
0: And those kinds of things, if you've listened to other podcasts in the past, and fourth-year students that have taken the SHELF exam, they will point out that the timeline is important. The symptoms have to be present for a long enough period of time, and that you have to have the five, uh, that sometimes the questions are set up as a, as a gotcha if there's only two or sometimes three. So on that note, let's go ahead and talk about some of the articles that you identified. Now, I, I want to point out that quite often when we're doing these podcasts, there seems to be a growing consensus or maybe at least a consolidation of ideas where we're talking about two or three main ideas. This was very different, right? I think we could have found uh, articles that said that social media increases connectivity and articles that say social media decreases connectivity. We could have found uh, articles that talked about increases depression and decreases depression. There is a lot of of data out there and it's very conflicted in what it means. So as we're we're reviewing the articles, I I just want to point out that these are a sample of the articles that we found, but I think fairly representative of the the kinds of things that we came across. So let's start off with the O'Reilly article. Now this was an article that was published in, in 2020, not 1920. In the Journal of Mental Health, and I think this is a, a nurse practitioner article, right? Uh, this is a journal for nurse practitioners to to write in, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, it's the next one, so let me back up. This is the Journal of Mental Health, this is O'Reilly, and this was the focus group study. Which of you prepared the, this article? I did. All right, Romina, tell me a little bit about this article.
1: So basically, this was just a discussion between adolescents and um and healthcare providers, basically a discussion of the perspectives of the participants rather than interviewing them. And that was kind of more of a opinion-based kind of trying to see what how adolescents thought about social media and how it impacts them. Um, If you really deep dive into the article, there were a lot of interesting um, points that they made where certain things the kids would describe as like myself or me, and then certain things that were more negative, they, them, like kind of distancing themselves. So these are things to think about. They were very aware of the negative effects of social media and very um, aware of the positive effects of social media and tended to associate the positive effects with themselves and the negative effects with others.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. I think the premise of this article, um, so, so let me, I think probably start with the premise. I I think the premise was built on the idea that there is, if I remember right, there's a United Nations statement on adolescent rights Mm -hmm. and built around this idea of adolescent rights, I think this is what I remember from this article. Um, We need to take into account how children, or not children, but adolescents see their place in the world, so to speak. And I think they make the case that there are um, adults who say, oh, you're in front of a screen too much. You've got to stop. It's hurting you without a lot of data necessarily. And on the opposite end of this, adolescents are saying, hey, it's a digital world we live in. If I don't have digital acumen, then I'm, I'm left behind in the world. And, and meeting somewhere in the middle to try and figure out what that is created these breakout sessions, and something called a thematic design for salience, which is um, some way of going into these like focus groups and talking to the students and figuring out the important points, and then trying to uh, synthesize that into a number of core issues, was the way that this author went about the study. And I thought it was an interesting way to go about it because I, I think there's a lot of thoughts about the good, and the bad, and the ugly, which was kind of the focus of this article. Um, By the way, do you guys know the reference for that? No. It's a Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Mm -mm. It's an old Western, if I remember correctly. Um, So they went about looking at this, and, and Romina, I really like the way you describe it. It's sort of like, I don't have a problem with video games everybody else does right, right. my faceTime my screen time is okay mm-hmm. but some people have too much screen time now now what was interesting was and I think we're going to see these things pop up again the the adolescents saw that generally speaking they were less isolated and they felt like they had more communication with others that they were developing um, communication skills through through the methods that were available the bad of this and, and they also felt like it was uh, a way to decompress to reduce stress, right? The, the bad part of this, and again, my use wasn't bad, but the bad use for other people, mm-hmm. right, was uh, self-esteem issues, FOMO.
1: Fear of missing <laughs> out, yes.
0: Fear of missing out, and changes in sleep. And I wanna put an asterisk by changes in sleep because I think we're gonna come back to that later, mm-hmm. maybe in the context of talking about exercise. Does that sound right? Yes. Okay, now the ugly, And I thought that this was fascinating because this speaks to the heart of something that I think we're going to try and dive into a little bit more, and that is, why is there so much discrepancy around the good and the bad? Why is it that we don't see these really clear signals for whether there's a net positive or a net negative effect on the internet? And and I think the issue gets down to uh, a couple of things. First of all, there's not a lot of discussion about whether internet bullying and trolling is bad. It seems to clearly be so, and it clearly seems to be negative to people. What's not as clear to me is if this simply replaces classroom bullying or something else, if there's really a net increase. I don't know the answer to that, but these are the harms that students identify, right? But then the third thing that was mentioned, almost as an aside, was perhaps the students recognize that seeing things that they are vulnerable to might be an issue. And I think we're gonna come back to that in a few minutes too. In other words, um, something about algorithms.
1: Yeah, we have um, lots of discussion about that and the Facebook article that came out in October. um, A whistleblower from Facebook basically mentioned how um, people who are more prone, and this was specifically adolescent girls, uh, more prone to anorexia or eating disorders in general Um, were getting more uh, advertisements on content that would lead them to increase their self-harm behaviors. So um, one of the um, websites, uh, this was from CNN for example, and I think multiple different news outlets did this, set up an account um, with the same method that the Senator's Office did when they were looking into this um, to follow a bunch of extreme dieting and pro-eating disorder accounts. And a couple days later, they were um, seeing Instagram promoting accounts with names like "Sweet Skinny," "Prettily Skinny," "Wanna Be Skinny," and um, CNN had registered this account to a 13-year-old girl. So obviously, like Instagram, the account doesn't filter for age to say, "Oh, this might not be appropriate for a 13-year-old girl who might be, you know, leading to these things." Um, leading into these eating disorders and whatnot. And there have been like Wall Street Journal also reported on this as well. Um, So there has been a lot of interesting research done on the way the AI is set up for these social medias and what kind of impact it has on people who um, are searching for certain things. And this kind of leads into a specific hypothesis that I'll talk about later. It's called a media selection hypothesis basically what you search for is what kind of comes up and what is targeted towards you. And I think that's a main discussion of how that can affect people's mental health when they're in certain states of maybe not necessarily a specific mental illness. It could just be symptoms of mental illness at that time and it may or may not progress. Sometimes it might get better and this is something that all the different articles kind of dive into. Yeah,
0: if I understood correctly, the whistleblower um, came forward mm-hmm. to the Wall Street Journal. That's where maybe the first article was published. And and I was surprised that they had internal data showing risks to young girls. And, and even though they have a policy against uh, eating disordered content being promoted, were even placed within Instagram, uh, because of the nature of Instagram, which is on body and uh, what is it? Whole person, I think, was the way he described it. It seems like maybe Instagram was more vulnerable to this being misused in that uh, pathway. Does that sound right, too?
1: Yeah. So how it, these ads are generated is basically what you search and what you're interested in, right? So even if it's something, they can't filter out everything completely. Whether it is, um, you know, eating disorder related or something else that may be inappropriate content for, um, you know, someone age 13. Um, As we know, everything on the internet isn't going to be perfectly filtered. Um, But I think within Facebook, they're starting to identify, or Instagram, they're starting to identify all these different patterns that may be affecting um, the younger um, kids more who are maybe not aware as to how influenced they are. Mm -hmm. Versus in our generation, we kind of understand that this is a targeted um, thing that occurs and it's meant to make things easier for us, you know, show us ads that we of things we want to purchase, and you know, it's a little more conscious for us. But for someone who's twelve, thirteen, it may not be as conscious for them, and it could affect them even more.
0: Yeah, I, I like the way you describe that. It's it's it, although I think the the heartburn I had about the Instagram article, and, and again, there there seems to be even though owned by the same company, Instagram seems to be more vulnerable due to how it is somewhat different than Facebook, to to that kind of um, to at least the content for anorexia in this case.
1: Right, the content of Instagram is meant for like this influencer space that has taken over, and a lot of that is based on appearances and how you look, and that's where a lot of content gets promoted in general. Um, So I think that kind of accelerates this issue in Instagram specifically.
0: Now I get made fun of because old people do Facebook and young people do Instagram, right? (laughs) I I don't necessarily do either, but if I were to get on one, right? Uh, The other part of this that disturbed me somewhat was that the internal data that the people at Instagram had suggested that this Algorithm, the way they had it set up, was actually harming children. What I didn't see was that they were actively trying to change the algorithm or protect the adolescents. And I and I think that was the thing that started. Uh, uh, it wasn't Grassley. Who was it that was doing the hearings? Yeah. Oh, I did it.
1: I did it. I forgot his, I
0: forgot the name of it. Uh, in in any case, um, you talked about how the ads are important, right? That the AI-generated algorithms guide us towards the content that we're interested in, sort of a selection bias thing. Um, you mentioned also that the FaceTime is important for revenue. How much money did you say, was it Facebook lost while they were down for six hours?
1: So Facebook specifically lost $100 million when they were down for six hours, just the six hours. Um, it was just a couple months ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Instagram and WhatsApp are also you know, included in their brand um, or their company. So I don't know what the total ad revenue loss was, but it was close to $100 million for just the six hours in ad revenue specifically, which is pretty... Significant, And I think that's probably what's leading to their hesitation on targeting this specific issue. Because I think for them, like um, technology wise, um, I don't think it would be as easy to filter out um, a specific like, you know, OK, for adolescent teenage girls, don't show them this specific content without rewriting their entire AI to target their. Um, ads differently, and I think um, the risk of losing a better targeted ad to filter out certain things may not be worth it to their company. Yeah.
0: Tough stuff, right? Tough stuff, and, and yet, I think the reason why there's a lot of noise is because it looked like it wasn't being addressed internally. Mm-hmm. Let's go to, uh, we've talked about adolescence. Let's talk about uh, people who are moving from adolescence into adulthood. There was a study done by Keating, uh, this was the Nurse Practitioner article uh, where they interviewed, uh, they sent out letters to Dartmouth, Massachusetts College students. I thought Dartmouth was in in uh, New Hampshire, right? Am I wrong about that? I
1: don't even it know campus? where Dartmouth is. <laughs> Somewhere on the East Coast, right? That's,
0: I hope so. Uh, so to all of you from Dartmouth who might eventually listen to the podcast, we sincerely apologize that we don't know the difference between campuses, we apologize even further. <laughs> uh, so, so I thought this was an interesting article because I thought Keating, um, it, even though this was a, a research article, I thought Keating set up uh, really a position paper, right? Uh, Keating made this great uh, case for the high risk of suicide. Uh, it's the number two risk of death between people aged 15 to 34. Uh, it's the f- a quarter of people, 18 to 24, have had suicidal thoughts in the last 30 days, according to this article. These are things that are referenced to set up the case. And 90% of people regularly use social media in this uh, age group. And so so what they did is they uh, sent out flyers, offered $25 gift cards, and tried to get as many students as they could to participate in this. At the end of the day, they had about 300 students. and. Um, they, they used two scales. Let's see, which of you were going to talk about this? Was it you, Jenny? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me a little bit about this study before I get too far ahead of myself.
2: So this study really was focused. It says it was called Emerging Adults' Attitudes and Beliefs About Suicide and Technology, Social Media. So it had a huge focus on the risk factors of using, of suicide, seeing suicide uh, content and things like that with social media and it actually talks it references quite a few articles and it talks about how um Instagram posts that contain um self harm or mention suicide ideation actually get more engagement than other posts, which is kind of what Romina was talking about. They're like their business, they're about their engagement and the th- the article that I thought was the most interesting on this one was that um, it talked about people with mental illness and alcohol and substance abuse are at high risk for suicide, and those people are more likely to use the Internet to discuss and learn suicide methods. So it's more of saying that these, this age range or this group of people It's about what they're, the purpose of the social media use, what they're there for. And um, a lot of, it's just saying that like, they're using it to find out how other people are self-harming or see, like reading about things. And they read about these glorified suicide stories um, on the internet. So, and I think there was another article that we had...
0: So, so let me back up, because you're. I, I think, just to clarify for people that might be listening, so this article had uh, four references about the role of social media and suicide, uh, references 17, 18, 19, and 20, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And you guys looked those articles up that were used as part of the building block for this article. And the idea was, what role does social media play in suicide itself? And And just to clarify, what you're talking about is that At least in one of the other articles, Instagram was a place where people would go and find more information. I think this article talked more specifically about YouTube Mm. uh, being the source where people would go. um, And that maybe at the end of the day, uh, people who were actively looking at the content about suicide became desensitized or more willing to either discuss suicide or uh, even attempt suicide. So I think that was, I think that's, just to clarify, I think that's what where we're at at the moment. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going.
2: Oh, I think I'm done with that
0: okay. article. <laughs> in that case, um, let me add a couple of things that I thought were interesting about this article too. So they used two skills. So after they brought in these 300 students, which were uh, actually largely uh, female, white female students, um, they actually mentioned in the methods that a, a surprising number of these students had contact with somebody who had attempted suicide in the past. So so the selection for these people that provided the data seemed to be skewed in a couple of different ways, right? And, and how representative this is of everybody is hard to know. They also used two tests to try and understand the thoughts and beliefs that people had who were using the internet. One was the tech use questionnaire, the TUQ. And what they identified was that the main types of social media that were being used were Snapchat, listening to music, texting, YouTube, and streaming movies. And I, I don't see any of those being really great examples of social media. Um, the cl- maybe Snapchat, but as far as I'm aware, that's still largely a texting uh, platform. Unless- There's a
1: lot of news and influencer blogs and things that go on Snapchat. YouTube is also really linked to Instagram. So I feel like those are pretty, I mean, as much as YouTube is a place for information sharing, it's also kind of turned into a social media platform.
0: It's it's used by the social influencers as a way to have uh, more than a Twitter length, a conversation, or right?
1: people like put out content. Like I have a friend who you know puts arts and crafts on their Correct. thing, and
0: right. So so there's pages that are followed. I, I wouldn't yes. say that it's the. It doesn't have it's this. It's not as interactive. It's not as interactive. I think is the way I was thinking about it. So so I wasn't I wasn't uh, overwhelmed that these are great examples of the kinds of things we think about because I think about Instagram and Facebook largely when I think of social media. Right, I, to me, that's the two big players in the market. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't, this group of students is not using those, which surprised me a lot, right? And, and it's a study that was published just last year. Uh, the second part of the study that I thought was interesting was the stigma of suicide uh, short scale.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the idea is there are three subscales. One is how stigmatizing is suicide to you? The second is, how glorious or normal is suicide you? Glorified, rather, not glorious. And the third uh, is, how depressed or isolated are you? I think. Mm-hmm. So So this is a scale I'm not familiar with, and uh, something that I'll kick around a little bit more. I didn't go back and look for the validation on this either, for either of these two. Um, so I, I don't know very much about these two. Um, but I thought that was interesting that Like I said, the two big players don't seem to be in this list. Even though you can get to those two from all of the other sites, right? And I'm I'm aware of that, or at least to YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't see streaming videos or streaming movies as, as a social media platform. I thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah, that seems odd to me that that would be considered social media and the music one too.
0: Yeah, I just couldn't understand that. Now the other problem I had with this article was after they did this great setup, and then they had two tools that I thought were very interesting to try and assess uh, attitudes, um, then what they said was the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force has decided that it's not appropriate to scream for suicide, which I thought was fascinating, right? Because you can't accurately do it and you don't have an intervention that will necessarily work, right? I think that was the basis of that. And then they said, well, but we think you should anyway, and here's how we would go about doing it. And so I thought it was a fascinating take on a very difficult problem. Now, the thing that I think I took away from it at the end though, was what you were talking about, Jenny, which is um, if you can go see the content that would normally be hidden from you about suicide, then you're perhaps more likely to act on that, that it becomes more normalized or more uh, glorified, right? So that one of those subscales becomes more, uh, more significantly impacted by the social media interaction. Um, I think as we talked about some of our prep for this podcast, we talked about the attitudes and and sort of the lay of the land. We've seen how adolescents see social media. We have some sense of maybe what uh, adolescents moving into adulthood see as uh, social media and the role of social media and how it may have, maybe more accurately, how it may affect them in terms of stigmatization and glorification of suicide risks. Um, but some of the best data we looked at was the article out of, uh, out of Sweden, right? And this is the Beers article from 2020, the uh, Journal of Adolescent Health. And I think we're going to talk about the, let me see if I can say this correctly. Kunskap om Ungar Sikiska Halsa och Burande.
2: That sounds great. Sure. You guys
0: are such liars. Uh. <laughs> but you both pass with flying colors now. Right. So the the CUPLE uh, study, we're going to talk about that. Who has this?
1: I do. Um, it was, I think, the only longitudinal study that we found, which was pretty helpful. Um, and I think this is a pretty good article that really assesses how Um, The frequency of social media use um, associates with the symptoms of mental health uh, or mental ill health is what they defined it as among Swedish adolescents. So there were 3,500 students in grade 8 followed for two years. So that's pretty significant sample size. Um, And the daily social media use was self-reported. The median use was about almost two hours at baseline and increased over the three years. the conclusion was basically that adolescents with higher social media use reported more symptoms of mental health problems, but there is no evidence of a longitudinal association between increased use and mental health problems. So this is where the two theories that I was talking about earlier come into play. Um, the, the, and these are the two major theories that have both been well studied and both kind of have evidence for. So it's kind of difficult to differentiate which one is true or not. Um, Media effects hypothesis is the first one, which is basically that the use of social media is causally associated with changes in mental health directly through emotion or excitatory responses or indirectly through replacement of other social or physical activities. So this is basically the media impacts your mental health versus media selection hypothesis is that mental health status predicts social media use through similar mechanisms. So this is kind of more like you have, say, for example, anorexia, and you are searching for, um, you know, social media content that really um, encourages your behavior in that way.
0: Or um, validates it.
1: Or validates it, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think um, based on this study, they kind of lean towards the second hypothesis, the media selection hypothesis, which is kind of, you know, in our discussion so far, it seems like the content we found um, leans that way as well. Um, so basically, this is not just true for mental health as well. This is also true for political information or, you know, violent content. It's just kind of a reinforcement of already existing beliefs or behaviors. And I think that's been studied very, like, thoroughly how, you know, if you're in the Bay Area and you Google something political, your Google search results might will be different from someone in a more like conservative area of like the country
0: Provo Utah perhaps? or
1: Utah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think the there is a difference there that, um, that that's something that exists and like, we need to be aware of. So I think, um, that it was, so, it was mostly just, they emphasized that there was a increased risk for symptoms of, um, mental health issues rather than a direct correlation to a specific um, disorder Um, and I think that was very important to keep in mind because we've definitely thrown around ideas of well some people are more prone to maybe certain um, mental health disorders and maybe this um, kind of environmental influence pushes them further into developing this disorder later in life. Whereas some people who may not be as susceptible to that um, may develop a symptom of the siggy caps that we talked about or two of the symptoms maybe, but um, not all five to lead to a major depressive disorder that you may see in someone else.
0: So so I saw this, I think a little bit differently where, um, I I think this was an article all about causation, right? Mm And and about the two theories. Which way does it go? Does somebody who has the problem go to the social media? Or does somebody who has social media go to the problem? Mm-hmm. And and I thought it was very clear uh, from my perspective in this article that uh, Beers, Beers, B-E-R-E-S, was saying that it doesn't look like social media causes the problem because even though at the start of the study, people who spent more time on the internet had more mental health problems, if somebody had an escalation of their internet, uh, social media usage over the two years, that didn't change the psychopathology. In other words, looking at the individuals, we didn't see changes based, we didn't see changes in mental health based on escalation of use, right? And I think that's where they were making the case. And, and again, I thought this was an incredibly difficult article to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's what I took away from it. Now, just, j- let me j- just talk about how this was such a difficult article and why, why I think you and I saw this slightly differently. Um, and that is that um, the analysis, right? So there were a couple of things that were a little bit unusual about this article. First of all, they had almost 30% attrition in the students that were available to uh, participate. Uh, I'm sorry, they started off with almost, uh, what, 535 schools. 101 of the schools in the eight eight or nine different eight regions of Sweden agreed to participate. There were about 12,500 students that would have been eligible. Just under 4,000 agreed to the study. And then by the third assessment, so baseline year one, year two, uh, over 30% had not participated in the study, right? So so our, our follow-up data is severely hindered by um, by the number of students. And what wasn't clear to me is whether or not there was regression analysis done, right? And the reason that I don't understand that is because I don't understand what RI-CLPM is, which was the analysis method that they used to try and understand the uh, between person versus um Versus within-person effect, mm-hmm. right? And so I went to the website that this, uh, where the data was linked. You can actually look at the way it's done, but I don't understand it. So I, so I struggled with that. Now the other concern I had with this study is that if you look on their their methods website, so if you click on the link that's within the paper, you can go to the RIC LPM uh, site where they where they disclose more data than what's available in the article itself. And not only was the SDQ used, but the CES was used. Now, the CES is a measure of depression. And uh, we've talked about that in other podcasts about depression in the past. And then they also used the SDQ. Now, I'm not very familiar with the SDQ, so I went ahead and looked up the history of that. It's sort of an interesting, uh, it's an interesting questionnaire. And the reason why I found it so interesting was because it, it's been used in settings like this before. They looked at uh, children. I think the study that I looked at was from 2009 where they uh, gave this to a lot of different people and what they found was essentially the higher your score is on the SDQ, the more likely you are to have a mental health concern, right, so an actual diagnosis. So if your SDQ, for example, starts at 5 and it goes to 12, you've um, linear, linearly increased your probability of having a mental illness. Now take all of this stuff aside which is fairly unusual in terms of looking at depression and mental health it's still i think a great approach but the this this focus on between the person and not within the person distinction that they make to make the case i think becomes very difficult to follow the way the language is used and so at the end of it i think they're making the case that for whatever reason some people have a higher risk based on the number of hours that they're actually on the internet or no, let me say it differently. They say that the number of the hours on the internet corresponds to the illness initially, but escalating the hours doesn't increase the risk to anybody. And they think that maybe that has something to do with the personality type. Um, Apparently, the SDQ has the ability to pull out internalizing and externalizing aspects, internalizing are how you respond to stress, and it's uh, if it's internalizing, then you act against yourself, you're anxious, you're depressed. If you're externalizing, you might be bullying or targeting other peers, right, or aggressive. And, and so they saw some differences that might correlon- correlate with internalizing or externalizing. And yet, at the end of the day, as convinced as it seemed to me that Beers was about there being uh, no effect of increased media time. I'm still not convinced that this is the best study to prove that, right? Because they have this initial finding of increased uh, mental health concerns among people that had high face time. So I do think he brought up uh, some good questions at the end of the article. He said, well, what mediates this, right? What What is the difference between the people who have mental health concerns and high internet use because not everybody that develops more internet use ends up having problems. So how do we pick out from the group where high internet use might be problematic? And I think that's kind of the focus of where we go for the next couple of articles. Does mm-hmm. that sound right? Yes. And and then, I don't know, maybe we are saying the same things, but again, this article I thought was incredibly difficult to read.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the interesting thing that you brought up where, uh, I think where you, what you're saying is the reported SDQ scores that were already higher at baseline um, were the ones that kind of indicated this um, predisposition to mental illness. Um, I think the part where I kind of took it as, um, you know, the second theory of media selection hypothesis is that um, throughout this study, um, the people who, um, you know, stuck with it, they reported higher social media use as the study went on. Mm-hmm. So I would be curious to see individualized um data and like look at maybe who developed more symptoms when they reached a certain person's baseline that and see if there was any difference in those patients specifically.
0: So what you're saying is even though the aggregate Mm -hmm. didn't have an increase in mental illness based on the SDQ of those that escalated usage, Mm -hmm. that aggregate doesn't really tell us the whole story. There might have been individuals within that group that had some sort of challenge and then looking at those that had a challenge and maybe looking at the externalizing versus the internalizing through the escalation might tell us something more.
1: Right and I feel like they don't really clarify if during their discussion if the slightly higher SDQ scores that are associated with mental illness are the baseline score or or if they are the score at the end of the study.
0: So, so I think what I understood from that was that at the end of the study, the SDQ um, didn't change with escalating hours. Mm. Okay, that's the only thing that I think I understood. So over time, even if you increase the amount of time on the Internet, the SDQ didn't get worse or didn't get higher. It stayed the same. That was what I think I understood from the article. So, anyway, for what it's worth, the questions at the end I think are very valuable. Now, you guys uh, found a couple of articles. We're going to talk about exercise. Now, I I always roll my eyes ever since Miles came through here. You guys know Miles? Mm -mm. Oh, Miles. Miles matched. (laughs) Congratulations, Miles. Uh, Miles was so anxious to prove that yoga is a treatment for PTSD, maybe? that we did a whole podcast uh, talking about how disappointed he was (laughs) that the data didn't support his (laughs) wishes, right? And so every time I see these exercise articles, my eyes kind of roll back in my head. But then I sort of had an aha moment. Um, Who has the exercise article? I do. Talk to me about exercise and internet.
2: So the article that we found is um, a social media campaign, Mm Um, this was in the UK and there, it was just, uh, so it's called red January. And so the months leading up to January, they used social media to promote, um, physical activity. Um, they would have testimonies of, uh, current and past participants, highlight the potential for improvements in mood and well-being, and just kind of encourage people to participate. And so then they enrolled a bunch of people in this study. I didn't write down how many, but um, they, so then for the month of January, they had people like keep track of their physical activity. So this is an example of social media being used in a positive way to um, positively influence people to do things for their mental health. They're, Cause they're saying that, you know, if you exercise more regularly, then that's better for your mental health. Um, and they found that there were two themes, like two types of people who exercise. And the first group was, People that exercised for pleasure because their things were that they engaged with the environment. It helped with their mental space, clarity, and peace. Let's, and let's
0: be honest. It's all about the dopamine, right? It's all about the, uh,
2: the endorphin
0: rush, right? People that have big endorphins running, do it. <laughs> and I can't then, find another explanation <laughs> for it.
2: And then the other group was the people who exercised for a purpose. So, um, people that had goals that they wanted to meet. People who wanted to like meet a certain, you know, they had they were trying to measure or review progress. Um, and so this was like a positive way to use social media to support them and motivate them.
0: So, so the other thing that that I was kind of hoping, I didn't get a chance to read this article. One of the things I was hoping to hear from this article was that exercise may help um, counter one of the things that I don't think we found a lot of data on. So w- one of the things that's whispered over and over in the articles we're looking at is that this changes in sleep might be the issues we see in mental health, right? And I think uh, we saw some OCD things that related to continually scrolling maybe when it was time to go to sleep. And then I think uh, I, was, I was desperately hoping that exercise would help people fall asleep at night better. Um, but I, I think it's very clear that even though we have these, uh, what was the phrase called? There was somebody who wrote a book, Moral Panic, in 1970, right? And, and the idea is that, you know, that whatever is the latest thing that we're seeing, in society we need to be panicked by it <laughs> and uh, the moral panic associated with the internet based on what we read is overblown right at least generally speaking and the parts of the internet that can be addressed the uh, algorithms that select young adolescents to continue looking at, uh, at um, postings that uh, glorify unhealthy behaviors such as anorexia, right? Those are clearly problematic. But the general tenor of the uh, of social media hasn't been as destructive as that example, right? Uh, so th- there is maybe a place where we can be more aware of a pattern, and I think it's called vague booking.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Talk to me about vague booking, guys.
2: So, um, vague booking is this concept that, uh, Let's see, where did I put this? It's when um, an individual posts something vague on their social media to attract attention. And this last article that we looked at um, talks about how this is like social media variables are poor predictors of like mental health outcomes. But the exception is that vague booking and individuals who engage in this behavior um, slightly predicted loneliness and suicidal thoughts.
0: Okay, so, so I think Berryman continued a lot of the trend we saw which is th- there are some things about the internet that we can learn where, where the interface between uh, mental health and the internet are worth exploring further. And so Barry, I think Berryman is the uh, mm-hmm. author of this article, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Barryman said, look, generally speaking, it looks like Facebook is benign. Generally speaking, it looks like Instagram is benign, right? It's, it's not the cause of our societal ills. However, there's something unique that does happen, and it will allow us to identify people who might be in trouble. Um, so let me see if I can give a good example of a vague book comment. I'm going to go get ice cream today. Yes or no? No. 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 Uh, I really like my new glasses. No. No. Just if, dot, dot, dot.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Now, if I understood correctly, there's a purpose to the vague book posts. Tell me what the purpose is based on uh, the Berryman article.
2: Just for attention. It, that's what I got from the article.
0: That's what I got, too. So people that are posting ambiguous statements on, on their uh, feeds uh-huh. are, are seeking attention. Yes. Now, it also seems like seeking attention may be correlated to either maybe a histrionic personality disorder or the risk of suicide.
2: Like a cry for help, almost.
0: Yeah, tell me what, what Berryman concluded with that. I, I wasn't sure I understood the conclusions very well.
2: Um, the conclusion that I read or that I interpreted from this was that um, the time spent online isn't what's important. It's how this, the individuals are using social media. So kind of what we were talking about earlier, if they're on there looking for content about suicide or self-harm or anorexia.
0: Or how to blow up buildings or whatever yeah, else.
2: Yeah, it's how this per, how this individual is utilizing their social media. That's like the predictor of the mental health issues.
0: And vague booking is one of the few ways to really say, here's an issue. Mm-hmm. Okay unless you have, I guess, the person's search domains then can review all of the websites they've been on. Okay. All right, so, um, what else have we not talked about that might be worth addressing? I know we prepared a whole lot more. We talked about subsyndromal depression. We talked about two-hit theory. We talked about how maybe the stress of uh, posts might tip somebody who's, pre, uh, who's genetically predisposed uh, into depression, into kicking into depression. We had a lot of other stuff, but it felt like at the end of the day, it was probably too much to tackle with this podcast. So is there anything else we should probably try and pick up at the moment?
2: Um- the one interesting thing I read um, about subsyndromal symptomatic depression is it talks about um, a biological marker of people who exhibit signs of depression, and it's the serotonin receptor hypersensitivity to serotonin, and it's a study from 1998 um, by Burke, that uh, shows that in depressed patients, intracellular calcium increases significantly upon exposure to serotonin compared to normal or euthymic individuals. And we talk about, we discussed the two-hit hypothesis, but we didn't really find anything that particularly said that this is the two-hit hypothesis for depression. And I just thought this was, Maybe something to consider, like if someone was already, already had this hypersensitivity and then the situation around them, their environment influenced that, it would lead to I,
0: rem- I remember when this study came out, I was more focused on mood disorders at the time and less focused on schizophrenia. And my recollection is that this hasn't led us anywhere yet. We haven't been able to build treatments based on on HTTP T L P R, LPR, or HTT2, or uh, a number of the different uh, serotonin receptor differences. I think there's a long arm and a short arm and a couple other things that might be out there, but don't hold me to any of that because that's memories from 20 years ago that I'm sure are no longer as accurate as I wish they were. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to take-homes. Uh, Romina, what's your take-home from this podcast?
1: I think my take-home from this podcast is, one, um, really d- knowing how to differentiate a major depressive disorder from depressive symptoms. So the caps that we talked about and the five of nine symptoms for over two weeks to have a major depressive disorder. And I think um, this is like an article that we didn't talk about, but I think it had a good conclusion. It's Social Media Use and Depression in ad- Adolescents, a Scoping Review. Um, Vidal is the main um, author on that, and they kind of assessed a bunch of different articles on the quality, the quantity, the social aspects associated with social media, and social media as a tool for mental health. And essentially they found that there is this bi-directional association between the frequency of social media use and the type of social media use are the main things, Um, and depression in some instances, even suicidality. So I think um, really focusing on those two different types of hypotheses, the media effects and the media selection hypotheses, I think um, those are some key ways that we can kind of further explore this topic and um, kind of think about how we use social media ourselves and how it can be impacting us and the people around us. Um, I think that's one of the reasons we really picked this topic was because we thought it would have a really broad outreach and um, we want it to impact a lot of people. Even if it, even if we don't have a specific com- conclusion, it's a good thing to think about um, when you are using as much social media as our generation is.
0: 20 hours a week or more. What <laughs> oh, was it in Great Britain? Was it almost 30 hours a week in Great Britain? Oh, I didn't. See. 99% of British adolescents uh, spend 21 hours or more per week on uh, the screens. And then I think the Swedish study... I counted up, I think they said 2.7 hours per day, which I had calculated to I be 18.9 per week.
1: 1.7 at baseline, but it increased over the... point
0: um, seven. Was yeah, that what really it increased to? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So almost 19 hours per week by 10th yeah. grade. Yep. Lots of hours on the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that correlation, there is a correlation that we're tracking, and causation is the part that um, I think we're still... I think people are still looking at that right yeah I, I don't know that I was left with any of these studies going wow that's a definitive study Right. Uh, even though it it to me it does seem like the causation is not there for social media to cause the problems um, with probably a few exceptions. Uh, Jenny?
2: I think my biggest takeaway from this is that there's good and there's bad with social media and it is just a matter of how we're using it and to be mindful of that. Um, And hopefully adolescents and young adults of the next generation are more mindful, now that we know all these things, they're more mindful of how they're using it and what kind of things are being targeted at them.
0: See, and I'm just a cynic. My take-home is I'm just a cynic, right? I I didn't think that books caused problems when they came out, even though I think at the uh, library you guys saw that excessive reading was the cause for somebody to be hospitalized, right? Yes. Uh, in the
2: mu- Oh, sh- she wasn't there. She wasn't
0: there at the museum. Yeah. She, I wondered why you had that blank look in I your really eyes. I like, really missed out. <laughs> I know.
2: There was a list. I went to the museum last week, and there was a list of reasons why patients were admitted to the hospital, and excessive reading was one of them.
0: Right. So I don't, I don't blame books for problems. <laughs> I think you guys are easily on board with me there. I don't blame TV for the ills of society. I didn't blame video games for violent behaviors, and I'm not sure I can blame social media for the things that are happening. On the other hand, uh, I think my take home was that there are some interesting interactions between individuals and the internet that might help us be more effective as physicians. In other words, if somebody tells me that they've been bullied on the internet, that would be a sign to me that that's one of the uglies of the Internet, right? I think there's a lot of data that Internet bullying is not a lot different than being bullied in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, If I have somebody that tells me that they're looking at Thinspiration websites, if you're familiar with those, then I'm going to be very concerned that that's a person that has an eating disorder, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think uh, asking questions like, tell me what you spend your time looking at on the Internet. I think there's a good chance we won't get an honest answer, but at least asking those questions and and maybe thinking about how we interact with adolescents is, is a way of identifying problems, not necessarily cause, right? So so my takeaway, like I said, I'm a, I'm a little bit cynical, I think books were probably a good idea. I think TV was a lot of fun. I really like video games. <laughs> and you know, to each their own. If it's social media, knock yourself out. Um, and, you know, if it's not healthy, which I think most kids had a sense of what was healthy and not healthy, right. then then maybe the issue isn't the internet. Maybe the issue is how do we get kids to talk to people about the things that they know are not healthy and address those without fear and shame, right? So, uh, so I, um, I think that was one of my takeaways. The other takeaway I had was I was very fascinated by the research in this area. I think... Uh, most of the research we've looked at has been focused on different kinds of tools, and I was intrigued by the strengths and... Uh, what was the D... What are the difficulties. D- difficulties. I liked that rather than weaknesses, right? Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire. I was intrigued by how that corresponded to uh, overall illness, and I thought it was a fascinating way to, to track populations over time. Um, and I was also captured by the difficulty that researchers have in trying to assess what it means to have either a healthy or an unhealthy uh, social media world that we live in. right? So, so uh, when we come back and do this podcast in 15 years and we talk about the metaverse <laughs> and how the metaverse is unhealthy because our avatars all look like... Uh, um, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Yeah,
1: there you, that's a
0: good one. I'm I'm like 30 years out of date on that, <laughs> I know. Um, but but when all of our avatars look like that and we have self-image problems, right, and how that's affecting our mental health, i will be interested to see if it's just the debate about books again. <laughs> anyway, a lot of fun, guys. Thank you for not giving up despite my attempts. Uh, great job, and on on the and on that note, team out.
2: Team out. (laughs) You (laughs) didn't?